Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Team Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Big week this week, of course. Big week, it's the uh, the Welsh Open. And uh, it's always uh, an enjoyable tournament, this, because it's got history. First held 1992, so this is the 32nd staging. It's longest-running tournament, ranking tournament, uh, after the UK Championship and the World Championship. So, big week, but uh, it's also, of course, in other ways big, because it's going to decide the 16 players for the Players' Championship. There's various star names that need to pull up trees to get into that. And also the Bet Victor bonus prize, which is worth 150,000. That's also, uh, up for grabs as well. So, it's all going to be resolved this week. But as I say, the actual tournament itself, um, you know, is, is very, uh, is very highly thought of. I think it always comes at a nice time in the season. This year it's in Clandidno in North Wales. First time it's been there. Joe Perry defending the title. And that Monday, of course, you may be listening to this, uh, of course, on Monday, but, it's basically the whole of the top 16 play. So it's a, it's a great day to attend. You know, four tables, lots of matches, lots of excitement. And uh, ticket sales apparently are very good already, which is great. So this week, um, I'm going to be uh, going through the latest list of emails, which essentially is sort of like on life support machine, this podcast. It's kept alive, basically, by your emails, <laughs> which are always welcome and uh Alpha Bonzi, it's becoming tradition that he sort of gets the first first two questions, a bit like uh, Prime Minister's questions, um, when the leader of the opposition gets to... Uh, anyway, um, Alpha says, I'll start... Now, this is the only person who's actually engaged with what I said last week, which tells me most people don't care about this, but anyway. She says, I'll start by answering your question from last week. Re, should holders of the players' series titles automatically get in next season's events? I'm going to say no, as there will be no incentive for the top players to enter events. Imagine Neil Robertson starting this season knowing he'd already qualified for the Players and Tour Championships as defending champion. We might not have seen him this season until the UK. And we wouldn't have such an interesting little subplot for the Welsh. Well, I, I, that, I agree with what you say, Alpha. I think that's the side I come down on. I think there is an argument the other side, but I think that's probably the side I come down on. He says, talking of the Welsh, uh, two questions. Why the move to Clandidno when it's been held in South Wales since 1992? Well, Alpha, I mean, uh, here's the thing, okay. Most questions that get sent into the podcast, 90% of them, the answer will be money, okay? Because World Snooker Tour ultimately is a business. They have to run it as a business responsibly and they have to manage their finances and manage, you know, the commercial realities uh, of the sporting world. And so when people say, for example, why aren't there more tournaments? Well, because they cost a lot to put on <laughs> is, is the reason. And in the case of this, so the... Uh, Tour Championship was in Clandidno. Um, it's a lovely venue, by the way, a venue Cymru there, and lovely town, lovely part of the world, very picturesque. Um, but anyway, the Tour Championship was there. I think it was felt that it had, had grown that venue, so it was moved. It's going to go to Hull this season, and who knows where it'll be after that. So that meant there was nothing in Clandidno, but the World Snooker Tour have got very good links with Clandidno. Lord Mostyn there, his family sort of basically run the town as such, and he's a big snooker fan. I met him last year. He's a big snooker fan, and he wanted to bring snooker to the venue because it, it, it benefits the local economy. 
So the Welsh Open, I guess, was the obvious event because it's in Wales, which always helps, North Wales in this case. First time it won't be in South Wales, and I know a lot of people in that area are not happy. What I would say about that is next season, you know, spoiler alert, but next season I think you'll find there will be a tournament in South Wales as well as one in Clendino. So the community there can uh, hopefully go to that one, um, you know, watch this space. But in terms of why the Welsh is there... That's the reason, basically. The, the venue, you know, wanted a tournament. Obviously, a, a good deal has been done. And we know the venue works for snooker because the Scottish Open, bizarrely, of course, was held there. So it, it's hosted a Home Nations event before. You can get all the tables in and, and all that. So that's the reason, really. Um, they wanted to keep the link with Clandidno. Um, and it's a shame, I think, because I think a lot of people said that the Newport venue last year at the Celtic Manor was really good. But um, anyway, that, that's essentially it. Alpha's second question, uh, the appeal in the Northern Ireland Open is the fact it's set routes in the Belfast waterfront. None of the other home nations events have managed this. Isn't it time for the Welsh Open to have a permanent home? <clears throat> well, of course, it, it did do for a long time in the Newport Centre um, and then the Cardiff International Arena, which I thought was a, a fantastic venue because it's right in the centre of Cardiff, you know, which is great transport links, you know, hotels, restaurants, bars, all the sort of things that people look for. That's the sort of venue we should go to. So it did have a permanent home. But you're absolutely right when you say tournaments ideally would should have a permanent home. When we did the snooker venue bingo with Alan, Neil and Phil recently, this is the point I made. If you you know To build up the identities, particularly of new tournaments, they have to be associated with specific venues. Like when I was young, you'd have the, the Rothmans Grand Prix at Reading, you'd have the... You know, the Tenants UK at Preston, you know, the, obviously the B&H Masters at Wembley. You knew the events by their venues. Now they get moved around like a carousel and it's very hard to establish an identity. Whereas an event like the UK Championship now is associated with York. The Masters is associated with the Ali Pali and, of course, the World Championship associated with the Crucible. If you're going to keep moving tournaments around, it's hard to do that. So who knows, Clendino may become the permanent home of the Welsh. Um, but as I say, it has had... Uh, permanent homes before. <clears throat> now, the Welsh Open uh, features in this next email from Gareth Williams, who writes, I've been listening to the podcast for almost three years now. I started listening all the way back to the first lockdown in 2020. With all sport having dried up at the time, it was nice to binge on a few of your episodes to fill the void. I've listened to every edition since and enjoyed each one. Thank you. Uh, he says, I appreciate I'm a bit late to the party on this one, but I just want to say how much I enjoyed your 25th anniversary of working in snooker episodes. I should say that, um, this is me now, I should say that uh, all back episodes are available from the usual offices. Uh, over 200, 230-odd, they're all there. Um, so, you know, back, back, back uh, issues, not back issues, back episodes can be listened to. Anyway, Gareth continues... I thoroughly enjoyed listening to how you got into the journalistic side of the sport. As a recent journalism graduate myself, I particularly enjoyed listening to your stories about being in the press room for the World Championship at the Crucible, something which I was able to experience myself last year for the first time as part of the Masters I was undertaking. I was there on a work experience placement with the WST media team on the first week of the tournament, thanks to Ivan Hershowitz. I should explain Ivan is... Uh, this is me again. I should explain Ivan is the head of media at... Uh, Wilson Couture and one of the one of the genuinely good guys of the sport as well. Um, uh, very uh, very uh, sort of straight batted in everything he does, which is, is what you want when you're dealing with uh, you know sort of media issues. Anyway, Gareth continues. It was a fantastic experience. Particular highlights being attended the media day and getting to chat to Barry Hawkins, Anthony McGill, and Mark Williams, and of course just being in the press room itself, meeting the WST team and other journalists attending and transcribing the post-match press conference for the WST website match reports and getting to experience the behind-the-scenes elements not many people get to see. My ultimate dream in the future would be to work within the sport itself or extensively covering it alongside other sports for a printed or online publication. I've followed the sport for many years as a fan too, regularly attending semi-final Saturday at the Masters with my dad most recently this year and going to watch what became known as Moving Day, rounds three and four on a Thursday at the Welsh Open. I'm from South Wales, so a trip down to Cardiff became almost an annual tradition too. It's a shame to see it move up to North Wales from a southern point of view, but my diplomatic side is happy to see Clan Didno once again host a big event after being stripped of the Tour Championship. Well, again, it, it, it wasn't so much stripped of it. It's just that it was felt that tournament had outgrown that venue. But as I say, next season, um, you may find that there is something in South Wales. Anyway, Gareth continues. This brings me nicely onto my main topic, 
which is indeed about the upcoming Welsh Open. Depending on when, if this email is read out, oh, believe me, Gareth, you could have written anything, it'd be read out. Listen, we, I, I, I came close to reading out a spam email um, offering me $27 million if I just gave my bank details to a man in Africa. That's how, that's how light we are on emails. Anyway, he says that uh, the Welsh Open may just be beginning or will have ended, but my thoughts will still be relevant. Well, uh, it hasn't started as, as we read this out. As someone who's followed snooker well before the conception of what's now known as the Home Nation series, I can't help but feel the introduction of that series slightly divide the reputation the Welsh Open built up over the years. I'm not suggesting I don't enjoy the other Home Nations events. I very much look forward to all four of them each year. In particular, the Northern Ireland Open, which has become a big feature on the calendar in its own right, partly thanks to the special stories to come out of it and it finding a home at the waterfront in Belfast and staying there. It's built up a respected reputation now because of these things. As you've said in previous episodes, it's important the tournament establishes an identity, which this now has. When the Welsh Open was a standalone tournament many years ago, it was exactly the same as this, and I felt that lumping it in with the Scottish, English and Northern Ireland took some of that prestigious identity and reputation away. With the Welsh Open having moved around over the last couple of years, not counting the Covid year at the Celtic Manor, it seems the tournament could now struggle in finding its identity again. If the tournaments were to be ranked in terms of their feel, I think Northern Ireland would now come out on top, with the Welsh being second or third. As I mentioned, I still enjoy all four events and very much look forward to them each time they roll around. I'd love to hear your own thoughts on this too, with you having worked on covering the sport for so long. I know this was a bit of a long read, so congratulations for making it to the end. Well, not at all, thank you. And um, I have to say, Gareth, I completely disagree with you. (laughs) And the reason is, actually... Back in the day, the Welsh Open was the poor relation of all the ranking events. We didn't have many. When we had six or seven, the Welsh Open, despite its history, was probably at the bottom end because the prize money was quite low. It was um, it was not felt really to be a big event. I actually think the Home Nations series has reinvigorated it. It's now part of a series. Um, it's part of a, a group of tournaments, but it still has its own identity because it's being played, obviously, in Wales, the only event at the moment in Wales, and I think it gave it a shot in the arm. The prize money went up. Um, so I actually disagree with you. It's, it's interesting how people have, have different perspectives. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see how the identity of it really has been affected by being part of the home nations. It is still the Welsh Open. It is still... I mean, it's on BBC Wales, for example, the only event that they sort of show bespoke. Um, so, yeah, that's it really. I, I don't, I tend not to agree. I think, I think the Home Nations has actually given it a bit of a shot in the arm. They play for the Ray Reardon Trophy, which is something nice. Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, it's still a, a really nice tournament, I think. Uh, Tom writes, one thing I've never heard discussed is the maths ability that all professional snooker players seem to have. I've never seen any of them use a pocket calculator. I have a university degree in sciences, and while I'm watching on the telly, I used to have a pocket calculator to figure out potential snooker scores, especially to determine if snookers will be required or not. Maybe all professional snooker players naturally have superior math skills, regardless of level of education, and those without such skills never make it to the professional level. Just a thought. <clears throat> well, Tom, I think this is simpler than that. I just think they've been playing so long, it's just ingrained. It's it's like muscle memory. They look at the table, three reds left, 51 on. It's just something that you know because you've played so long. I do, I do have to say though, you're right. I think in matches, it is impressive how under the pressure of playing a match, they can work out the maths of it. When you say, I've never seen any of them use a pocket calculator, Steve Davis did once. <laughs> he was in the Irish Masters. He cl- I was playing Mike Alice, I think, and he cleared, he cleared up not realizing he needed a snooker, so he'd done the maths wrong. And Mike's waiting for him to obviously lay one. He didn't lay one. He cleared up and he was, he was still a point behind. So he went out and he went to the press room. He got a pocket calculator, came back out with it, as if to say, how dumb am I? I'm going to need this now. And anyway, he won the match. Not that that's big news with Steve, because he, he won, won, won a lot of matches back then. But anyway, he has... But he wasn't using it, obviously. He was using it as a joke against himself. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's kind of just instinctive now. They they just can can work it out. Sometimes, you know, there have been occasions where they haven't worked it out and they've ended up in uh, a spot of bother. But anyway... Um, well, let's stay on Steve Davis. It's, it's seamless the way this works. Sam Hill says, "I'm a long-time follower, the long-time fan of the podcast, but first-time emailer. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Uh, by the way, as you say that, there'll be no edition next week. <laughs> we're not we're not here next week um, just because there's a lot of things going on. But we'll be back in a fortnight with a bumper a bumper episode, whatever that means. 
just means it'll be the same stuff, but maybe a bit longer. Anyway, Sam says, I came across an Alex Higgins v Steve Davis match on YouTube this week from the Masters in 1985. A great match for the first round. This was pretty um, extraordinary, actually, this match. It went to a decider. It was absolutely packed, and uh, there was basically a pitch invasion at the end, if you've seen it on YouTube. And Alex shouts... Um, well, I, I'm going to replace the swear word, because not everyone likes swearing. I'm going to replace it with uh, Merlot, OK? The wine. So I'm going to replace the swear word with Merlot. So Alex, at the end, he's been mobbed by people, and he shouts, We're Merlot back, OK? He doesn't use the word Merlot, but that's a, a flavour of... of, of uh, I think he was fine for that, but anyway. Uh, anyway, Sam says, It was a pleasure to see how good Steve Davis actually was at break building and long potting. Clearly, he's so underrated in that regard, as everyone talks about his tactical genius only, it seems. I would encourage any young listeners to watch this. I know we don't really like to compare eras, but I strongly believe Steve would still be winning ranking events in this era. His fantastic cue ball control and temperament would stand the test of time. Very interestingly, the match with Alex was tied at one all, and Steve missed a pot on the last red that was a carbon copy thin cut and in the same blind pocket to that famous Miss Black, which happened again just three months later against Dennis at the Crucible. It was virtually frame ball missed, and he went on to lose the frame. Always known for relentless practice, but missed a chance to learn from that miss, and history could have been very different in April that year, especially for Dennis, who is still dining out on the win. <laughs> well, thank you, Sam. One in the eye for Dennis there. But anyway, um, yes, well, Steve, yes. I mean, he was a special player. He professionalised snooker. Um, and he, Well, he professionalised snooker on the table in terms of treating it as a profession, working hard and being ruthless in terms of improving technique and, you know, just being that ultimate match player. And he helped improve the professionalism off the table because he was clean cut and he was an ideal talisman and he brought in a lot of middle class fans and therefore sponsorship and money and TV interest. I mean, I've said before, regardless of the greatest debate, I think Ronnie O'Sullivan is the greatest snooker player ever, but I think probably the most important figure in the history of snooker is Steve Davis. I think I've said that before. I'm happy to say it again. I think he's the most important person in the sports history. Um, yeah, so for what it's worth, that's what I think. But yeah, that match that you mentioned is, is uh, pretty heady stuff. We're Merlot back. <laughs> Imagine if he had said we're Merlot back. People would be pondering that for, for years. Uh, anyway, he, he used rather more upfront, uh, upfront uh, language. Fionn Lynch. I would first like to thank you and everyone listening for helping me find how to watch the ITV events in Ireland. It was much appreciated. Well, here we, yes, we had this, uh, question about, uh, about that and it was answered. You can get it through Sky. You have to manually tune the, 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 the Sky box or something. Um, so I'm glad that hopefully you'll be able to get that sorted for next week for the Players' Championship, which is on ITV4. Fionn says, I have two questions I'd like to ask you, both of which I saw being asked online and no one could give a definitive answer. The first one is, why is the main camera angle so shallow for most events? For the BBC events, the top of the image is the top of the table, and the bottom of the image is the bottom of the table. On all of the rest, there are massive gaps between the top of the table and the top of the image, giving us a very shallow view of the table, and all in all, a much worse view. I think um, I think we have answered that before. I think it's down to the different... Um, Agreements in terms of showing the sponsors' signage on the set. The BBC not being a commercial channel, I think, don't have to show that. And I think the commercial channels do have to show that. So they have a slightly different angle. I believe that's the right answer. If it's not, I'm sure someone will set me straight. Uh, the second question from Fion is relating to Table 2. I was watching Jimmy White's first round match at the German Masters and I was very pleasantly surprised to find you were commentating on it. I would like to know why this isn't done more often. As Discovery Plus is a paid service, I would love if they put the money that we as an audience pay to watch the outside tables into making the experience of us watching it more enjoyable. Well, what you're saying is why isn't the commentary, I guess, on the other tables? Remember at the start when I said most questions, the answer comes down to money and that's what it is. Money and resources... You'd have to pay people to do it, basically. And, and I suppose um, the, the feeling is most people will be watching Table 1, so that's where the, the commentary is put on. It may change over the, you know, there may be more of this happen and, and people may you know, be asked to commentate on the other tables. I think it's unlikely we're going to get to the situation where, you know, all four tables have commentary, but maybe Table 2 will have more. may de depend, I guess, on who's playing on them. For example, on Thursday night... Coming up, the Welsh Open, there's always that one quarter final in the home nations, seven o'clock Thursday, that's not Thursday night, Friday night, 
the seven o'clock quarter final is on table two. That will have commentary on it on, on Discovery Plus, so that's a special extra, if you like. But um, it's not practical, I don't think, to do it, you know, for every for every match. But uh, anyway, thanks for the, thank you for the question. We're going to go back to the German Masters now. Simon Biggin, he's bigging it up. <laughs> We'll, we'll gloss over that. So I want to pay tribute to all the German fans that attended the German Masters this past few days. Not only did they turn out in their many numbers, even though many top 16 players were absent, that's testament to their commitment and love for the game. But also the respect and response they gave each player really came across on the TV. It must have been amazing to actually be there. Although both semi-finals stole the limelight from the final a little, there was a lovely touching moment from the fans that you also picked up on in commentary. With Tom really struggling at 8-3 down and not being able to get going and probably feeling a bit fed up as he potted a red and failed to get the intended kiss to free the black. Having banged his cue into the floor in frustration, not anger, the crowd started applauding to get behind him and let him know they're with him. What a moment. Although he sank the tricky black to the green pocket and several of the dicey shots in the break, sadly it was to no avail. All in all, a great event. I'm pleased the fans were rewarded with some great snooker. A 146 and a 147 and an even bigger event next year. Thank you, Simon. Yes, I mean, that was a good, nice moment, as you say. They really showed their support. And I think Tom did appreciate that, actually. He did pop the black, as you say. So um, it was it was nice to see that. And I think we all agree um, that the, the German Masters is, is a very special event. Now, this is a very interesting email, I think, from Leon Tricker. He says, the recent podcast on the German Masters has prompted me to write. You mentioned that Ali Carter is a somewhat divisive character, but didn't explain why. I assume you were alluding to Carter's use of social media, which he has in the past used to share his political views. I'm one of those snooker punters who finds it difficult to can't pen... To can't pom- <laughs> I'll have another run at that. I'm one of those snooker punters who finds it difficult to compartmentalise a player... On a player's on and off table personality. My political views are not aligned with Carter's and thus I don't enjoy watching him play. Similarly, I found it difficult to listen to the recent praise for Peter Ebden's work with Jack Lazowski. Indeed, my wife is getting rather irritated at me, cursing every time I hear Ebden's name. Why do I do this? It's because Ebden uses social media to indulge in promoting nonsense conspiracy theories. For example, he recently retweeted a post which suggests there's a link between, between childhood COVID vaccines and autism. As a father of an autistic child, I can assure you and other podcast listeners that misinformation of this type is ext- is extremely hurtful and unhelpful. And frankly, my life would be much improved by never seri- seeing or hearing about Ebden ever again. I don't believe the snooker media, journalists and TV presenters generally challenge players and figures within our game on their off-table behaviour. There's sometimes discussion of incidents such as Sean Murphy's comments about amateur players, although that was perhaps an exception, because the story was so prominent in the national media it couldn't be ignored. But I can't recall much, if any, direct questioning of players. I'm not advocating for snooker coverage to turn into the soap opera the football has become, but I do think there's, there's a role for the snooker media to hold people to account, especially when, in my view, someone like Ebden verges on bringing snooker into disrepute. Even though he's not an active player, he's still strongly associated with the sport. They say you should never meet your heroes. For better or worse, social media makes it very easy to see who people really are behind their public persona. Well, thank you, Leon. Um, I thought this was very interesting. And uh, on Ali Carter, first of all, I wasn't actually referring to anything specific. I just am aware that he's a divisive character. I think a lot of it came down to that business with Ronnie O'Sullivan at the crucible when there was the barging although actually i mean o'sullivan barged into him so i think i think carter was not actually at fault there but uh, it, it may be that some people don't like his his um, you know his opinions and that's fine you know because everyone has different opinions um on the more i mean what you say about peter ebden you're, you're absolutely right he has peddled nonsense conspiracy theories um he went on five live when he retired and turned it into a kind of manifesto a personal manifesto about his his beliefs about the COVID situation. But you're wrong to say there's been no cost to that because actually Ebden's sort of commentary career, which was taking off at the BBC, you know, has not taken off since. They have not kind of touched him with the barge pole. And I don't expect any other broadcaster to either. So there is actually a cost to the way he behaves. I have no time for conspiracy theories at all. They, they seem to exist to make stupid people feel clever. The idea that you alone or you and your sort of band of brothers and sisters, if you like, on the internet, have got the answers to all the world's ills. And, you know, it's just nonsense. I mean, I mean the, anyone who knows anything about the world knows it runs mainly on complete incompetence rather than conspiracies. You know, I wouldn't trust most politicians to go down the shop and buy a, a, a beaker of milk, let alone organise some vast conspiracy. 
Um, <laughs> and, and of course, but a lot of these people, you know, they use, you know, some people believe in the conspiracies. Some people pretend to believe in them because it's to their benefit. David Icke, for example, um, who used to present snooker on the BBC, has made a lot of money off the back of this stuff because it's, it's interesting. These people, they have the idea that I know the answer. So if you follow me, you know, I'll lead you out of it. And by the way, give me money as well. That's, that's the most important thing. Give me money and, uh, you know, together we'll solve it all. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's just pathetic, really. So I've got no time for Peter Ebden's um, conspiracy theories. But, but here's the thing. You don't have to follow him on social media. You don't have to take any notice of it. Same with snooker players whose politics you don't agree with. And I don't, I don't agree that players should be, unless, listen, no crimes have been committed by any of these players, even though a lot of them have said things you might not like. I don't believe that players should be, um, certainly on snooker coverage, should be tackled about their political opinions for two reasons. One, people who watch sport often do it to get away from the news. It's an escape. It's something to enjoy. The idea of turning on the Welsh Open this week and having, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan ask questions on Brexit, I think would be appalling. And don't don't win that at all. And the other reason is, why should a snooker player have any um, answers to the big questions? I mean, with you know, disrespect. Let's pick a player at random, okay? Karen Wilson. Why would he have this, this suddenly have the answer to the Israel-Palestine conflict? You know, <laughs> we don't. We actually don't want to hear political views from the players, and we don't really want them to be putting them into the sort of general um, coverage, if you like, you know, because people don't go to sport for that. But it's an interesting point you raise about, okay, can you follow a player if they do have, you know, views in particular or behaviours that you don't like? And this is a, a wider question. It's certainly in the artistic world. If you look at someone like Roald Dahl, for example, you know, a wonderful writer of children's books. I'm sure many of us grew up reading them and many people will have children who, who read them now. He was a massive anti-Semite. A quite open uh, and proud one, it seems. J.K. Rowling, a lot of people have turned against her because of her views on, on trans issues. And someone like Mel Gibson as well has, has, has um, made various comments that have been about minority groups that people don't like. Does it mean you can't watch a Mel Gibson film? You can't watch Mad Max now? You can't read Harry Potter? You know, you, you can't read the BFG? Or can you separate out the, the, the piece of work from the person who is responsible for it. And sport, I think, is a bit like that. Um, so, for example, I might not agree with Ali Carter on Brexit, but I, I like watching him play snooker. And as I say, he's always been personally very nice to me. Um, so, you know, it, it's a big world out there. I think social media, which you've mentioned a couple of times, yeah, it can, okay, it can show what people are like, but does that really matter when you're watching them? If you watch someone make a 147, does it matter what they think about, you know, the, the general election? I don't know. Everyone's different. Some people, you know, will, will think it is relevant. But I don't, I don't want snooker coverage to be dragging in these outside issues. I don't want to know what, you know, uh, let's pick another player at random. Judd Trump thinks about the, the Ukraine situation because I, I just think it's, it's unfair on the players, actually. They're there to play snooker. And we hear a little bit too much from celebrities about the news because they're celebrities. I'd rather hear from people with insight into those areas, people of expertise in those areas, snooker players of expertise how to play snooker. So I think in general that's where it should it should remain. And in terms of Peter Ebden, regardless of what you think about, and you've got a very specific reason, which I understand why you, you've taken against him there, what he said about autism, but it is still relevant in a snooker context to say that he's in Jack Lazowski's, Jack Lazowski's corner because he is, and Jack has said he's helped. So I think it is still relevant to point that out. It's getting a bit tiresome always having putting the camera on him in the audience because you end up just saying that as commentators just saying the same thing. But it's a fact that he's working with him, and that can't be sep that has to be separated out from all the rest of the stuff, in my opinion. But I appreciate very much. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, what you wrote, and I'm sure a lot of people will have their own views on it. Now, Gordon writes, uh, not a very long email from me this week, but I thought I'd share some info about verification on Twitter, since I didn't fully link the info on my last correspondence. Now, Gordon, yes, he wrote in to say there might be changes in Twitter, and I did, in my complete ignorance, I knew nothing about it, so I couldn't really say much. But anyway, Gordon says, we heard today we heard that anyone who's verified on Twitter under the old system will likely be losing their verified check marks. 
so he sent a couple of links to this. He says, the news in the first link means that the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan, Neil Robertson, Sean Murphy, Judd Trump, Stephen Hendry, and a whole host of other individuals, uh, journalists, commentators, presenters, associated to the snooker world who have Twitter accounts will have to cough up £8 a month out of their own pockets just to have the check mark that may or may not prove they're the real person. Either they would have to do that or World Snooker Tour would have to pay $1,000 for their main at we are WST account to have the check mark plus $50 for every snooker player they include as part of their business. By my count, if all players on the tour were given verified check marks as affiliates of the business account and for simplicity, let's say there are 128 players on tour and they all have a Twitter account, that would mean it would cost, on the extreme side, $7,400 a month to WST to have a 32 by 32 image on all of these player profiles on Twitter, amounting to an annual cost Potentially $88,800. In my view, this amount of money is obscene to spend on paying off Elon Musk's interest payments for the massive loans and debt he acquired when buying the site. And WST would be better off funding using all this cash on more useful ventures that are most likely to benefit from. And he's put cough, the scoreboard cough. Well, indeed. Yeah, I mean, well, we don't know. I, I mean, I, I've always found the business of having the the, 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 the blue tick. It's actually not a blue tick, is it? It's a white tick in a in a blue background. But anyway, I've always found that a rather absurd thing to see, really. I can understand why, obviously, you know, Sullivan and Neil Robertson would have it. But, you know, you get like, you know, Bob who writes for the, you know, the Mansfield Chad, he's verified, you know, with his 300 followers. It just seems a little bit, I don't know, it's a bit showing off in a way. Um he says, "I don't have one, obviously. That's why I'm so, probably why I'm saying it. But I wouldn't pay. I wouldn't pay anybody anything to have a blue tick next to my name. You know, it just seems absurd. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 did, I did say I would speak to the man at World Snook about this, and I, and I haven't yet. But I, I'll be seeing him in Wolverhampton, so I will ask him what he thinks about that and report back." Gordon continues on to a more important topic than Elon Musk destroying Twitter. Do you know if fans will be allowed to watch the WST Classic in person and if there's a broadcaster planned? I would have assumed personally that fans would be allowed and that Eurosport would provide coverage, but it's only really a month before the tournament begins and not knowing if fans can be there or not will make it hard for many to work out if they should be planning for time off or not. I would be curious to know what info you have to share on this. Well, I, I believe fans are being allowed in. I think initially the the... They weren't going to be, but I mean, I was in Leicester last week where the event's been held, um, and I was told fans will be allowed. But obviously, check first. Don't set off for Leicester on my word. Check with Will Snooker Tour first. Um, I'm sure there'll be info released sh- shortly. I believe that the public will be allowed in, and I hope a lot of people go because that, that event needs an atmosphere. It's going to be a bit soulless if there's no one there. Um, in terms of the broadcaster, as far as I'm aware, it won't be on Eurosport. It will be streamed, I would imagine, on Discovery Plus. Uh, I don't know if it'll be available anywhere else. Again, details to come. Um, I hope that, I mean, this sounds like self-interest. It doesn't have to be done by me, but I hope there's commentary on it done by somebody. I think it would be completely soulless if that, it's a world ranking event after all. It'd be completely soulless if that went out, particularly the final with no context or, you know, information added to it. Well, it seems to me World Snooker Tour, it's good they're putting this event on. It's brilliant, actually. They're taking a big financial hit from it, but they're putting it on because the Turkish Masters got cancelled. I think, as a goodwill thing, they need to make as much of it as possible and actually try and get people back on their side by making it into something. It could be a really good tournament. You know, the snooker will be good because it's always good. Um, a side issue, actually, I mean, the terrible earthquake that has hit Turkey and Syria recently, you do wonder, actually, if the Turkish Masters, you know, would actually have gone ahead anyway. Um, we'll never know, but I mean, you know, it could be that tournament it may not happen anyway, despite the, you know, the, the reason obviously it was financial reasons it initially got cancelled. Um, so that's, that's what I know. By the way, I must say that I was at the Championship League last week. Um, and this is not strictly, I know, I know we're here to talk about the, the big issues of the, of the day in the snooker world, but I have to mention the lemon drizzle cake at the Morningside Arena. I had a piece every day. I'm now the size of a cake as a result, but anyway, fantastic. I mean, they get they look after us so well there. The food, I know it's it's not the the big issue, but the food is fantastic. It's very warm, uh, sort of backstage there, and you, you, a lot of gossip gets uh, flown thrown around as well. And and one week, um, for, for for subscribers who send me money, much like David Ike, uh, I will record all conversations and put them out as a subscriber episode, and you can hear all, all the extraordinary conversations. A lot of talk about China last week backstage. One player there who has knowledge of the situation in China was adamant that the COVID is one thing, but he said that the um, 
the business with the, the match fixing potentially and potential bans has gone down really badly and is is imperiling there ever being any more snooker in China. He said that they're moving towards eight ball pool. There's big eight ball pool events for a lot of money, and snooker might be on you know on the back burner. But we then found out, and and you know, and this was just his kind of reading of it. I don't think he actually had any real. Uh, no one had told him this. It was just his sort of perception. We then heard that there's going to be a new ranking event in China, the China Grand Prix. This was a single source in Chinese media. There was no other... I couldn't find any other reference to it. So, again, I can't vouch for it. It's just a rumour. But if that's true, and there's a new ranking event, then that tells us that snooker is coming back. My view is, for what it's worth, I think, actually, tournaments will return. The Shanghai Masters is supposed to be on in September. I don't think they'll all come back in a rush. It might take two or three years to get back to having five ranking events there. There might be maybe two next season, then a couple more the next season. So it's taking time. But I, I do feel, personally, that um, Snooker will return to China. The, the young the young guy, uh, Ma, has just uh, has just won the uh, the World Snooker Federation World Championship in Australia. Big young Stan Moody in the final, so he's on the tour. So they've got a new, uh, new face as well. Um, I know nobody asked about any of this. I was, I was talking about lemon drizzle cake. But anyway... Um, Yes, a lot of uh, a lot of good chat goes on <laughs> backstage. And Matt Selt, by the way, must mention him because he now is uh, going to be in Group Seven, having come in, in Group One. So he is emulating Ali Carter, who in the very first year of the Championship League in two thousand and eight played in every group except the winners' group. So Matt actually could get into the winners' group if he wins Group Seven, and therefore set a record for playing in every group. Now, I know a lot of people find this odd. Like Hotel California, you know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Um, I know people find the format odd, but it is what it is. Uh, he came in in Group 1. If you don't win the group and you don't get relegated, there's four players each time come back for the next group. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. And Matt has been sort of stuck in it. Obviously, it's quite financially rewarding to him. And the other thing is he could break the record for most centuries in the tournament. He's on 21 now for the Championship League, which is incredible, really. Um... I think I'm right saying that's more than he ever made in any season. And he made them just in the Championship League. If he makes another three, which you're going to say seems likely now, he will break the record for most centuries in a professional tournament. Kyron Wilson made 23 in the Championship League. Neil Robertson had made 22 in the Championship League. Obviously, you get to play a lot of matches. But even so, despite that, it's very impressive, I think, to keep making these big breaks. So that'll be something. He's aware of it, Matt, and he's trying to do it. And why not? It's a great feather in his cap if he does. But anyway, that's the Championship League. Uh, Neil Robertson won Group 6, and John Higgins won Group 5. So it was uh, big hitters, to say the least. And uh, Judd Trump, Jack Mazowski, Karen Wilson, Stuart Bingham are also in the winner's group. So it's already probably the best ever winner's group. Ronnie O'Sullivan is due in Group 7. Um, so if he were to win that and get in the winner's group, then that's, you know, it's about as good as it gets. We will see. Now, last week I made a promise, and I'm going to keep that promise. Uh, Davey from Brussels wrote in with a long email about sort of frame uh, match durations, and, and he'd done a st- statistical analysis. I said I was going to read it out, and this is what I'm going to do now. So it's quite long, and also, when we get into the nitty-gritty of it, he's appended graphs. Now, obviously, you can't see them, um, so it, it might be a bit hard to follow, but, um, well, do your best. You know, we're all, we're all just, you know, we're all, we're all just... Uh, chatting snooker at the end of the day aren't we so he says please find below my modest contribution to the feedback questions you're frequently sent in the framework of the snooker scene podcast shortly on me i used to watch the world championship every year in the 1990s on the bbc but then somehow i lost track of snooker until rather recently i have to say just jumping in this is a very common thing a lot of people have definitely come back to snooker which is obviously you know a good thing um and i'm glad uh, david you're one of them uh now where, where are we yes he says um in 2019, I bought a subscription to Eurosport, originally to watch more tennis. And when exploring the Eurosport content, I found myself watching one of the semis of the Northern Ireland Open, Ronnie O'Sullivan versus Joe Perry, and explaining to my son the basic rules of the game. Long story short, three years and a few months later, I'm basically not watching tennis anymore. And the amount of snooker reaching my eyes and my son's is borderline unhealthy. Yeah, take that, Margaret Court. Uh, contemporary reference there. He says, that's me adding that in, by the way. He didn't say that. As a next step... I will experience live snooker for the first time early next year. I have tickets for both semis of the 2024 Masters. I must say that for people like me living in continental Europe, Eurosport is the perfect way to go. All the more so that we do not have the red button, nor do we have access to ITV or the iPlayer. 
few months ago, I discovered your great podcast, and I want to thank you for the high-quality, enjoyable content, as well as your fascinating and insightful coverage of the game on Eurosport. Warm congratulations as well on tw- your 25 years in the business. Well, thank you, Davey. That's all, that's all good stuff. Thank you. Now, he says, since 2019, I'm watching increasingly many snooker events, and this season, I've been watching almost every event covered by Eurosport. In this respect, I would like to ask about the hierarchy of events in terms of prestige, which remains unclear to me. This probably reveals how little I know about the game. Obviously, Triple Crown... (laughs) Here we go. Obviously, Triple Crown events are the most important ones, and among these, the most important one is the World Championship. I thought until recently that the UK Championship would come second, but I repeatedly heard during the Masters this year that the Masters would be considered more important than the UK Championship. To me, the hierarchy for other events is somewhat mysterious. Do the Home Nations events come right below Triple Crown events, or are invitation events like the World Grand Prix, Champion of Champions, or Players' Championship considered more important? Also, is there any any reasonably clear hierarchy among Home Nations events? Probably not. And among invitational events? Probably so. The Championship League and Shootout seem to be at the bottom of the hierarchy, despite being respectable ranking events. Any help to understand better the big picture regarding this would be most appreciated. Thanks in advance. Well, <coughs> OK. I think it depends on your opinion. It depends on who you are. Um, I think there's one obvious way to, if you want to rank the tournaments, to do it, and that's by the prize money, by the, by the first prize. So the Tour Championship is 150000 to the winner. That will be right up there. Um, and obviously the elite nature of it as well makes it prestigious. Um <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I saw it written. I don't want to keep picking at the same saw, but I saw it written recently. I think it was about Judd Trump. It said, because he won the Masters, obviously, and it said Trump knows that ultimately players will be remembered for how many Triple Crown events they, they've won. I'm going to say now, I don't think that's true. I think in time, they won't be remembered for that. And when I say in time, I don't mean two years from now. I mean 30 years from now. Because, and who knows if we're all going to be here or not then, but, uh, you know, you can you can hold me to it, to... Uh, what would be 2053 but um by then the whole governance of snooker will probably have changed it may have been picked up by you know a saudi business or chinese business or whatever and if that happens the whole structure of the tour will change a lot of these tournaments probably will never happen again you know the uk championship might might not happen because most of snooker won't be played in the uk so therefore Players, players 30 years from now won't be remembered for Triple Crown events because there'll be no such thing. At the moment, there's a, there is a thing that has been established, but whether it's going to last you know, the distance, we just don't know. Um, but you asked about the current time. I mean, the World Championship is number one, clearly. I think in a lot of people's mind, the Masters feels like it's now number two. Um, but personally, I don't rank the tournaments. The most important tournament to me is the one on that week. So this week is the Welsh Open. Um, and then next week it'll be the Players' Championship. I think they've all got merit in different ways. Um, so here's the thing, though, that, and it's not out yet, but the Champion of Champions, the qualifying system for that, they do actually rank the tournaments. So at the bottom of that, you will get the shootout, the six reds, and then the Women's World Championship, the Sen- World Seniors Championship, those sort of tournaments. So there is a sort of list there, but, I mean, there's not an official list. It's just what people, what different people sort of feel, I suppose. Anyway, he says, independently of this, I would like to comment on various aspects linking snooker and statistics. You're interested in such aspects of the game, if I'm not mistaken. Number one, during this year's Christmas special, you commented on the fact that best of seven matches are not lotteries and mentioned that a listener of the podcast evaluated through computer simulations the probability that a player winning any single match with probability 0.7 or 0.8 would win a best of seven, best of nine match or best of 17 match. Such simulations can actually be avoided, as a formula for these probabilities can be obtained. Now, this is where I would urge everybody to lean in and, and concentrate, OK? Because it gets a bit, uh, you know, um, specific here. But here we go. He says, I attach a figure showing, for various, standard length, length, for various standard match lengths, the probability that the best player wins a match as a function of the probability, between 0.5 and 1. The best player will win any single frame. Basically, the figure reveals the following... If the best player is only the best by a small margin, then the probability he, she will win the match barely depends on the number of frames to be played. The same conclusion holds if the best player is much stronger than his opponent. In the remaining cases, the probability that the best player wins the match depends much more on the length of the game, but still barely varies among short matches, best of 7 to best of 11, and among long matches, best of 17 to best of 35. Okay, so he's he's attached this... um, 
this graph and yes it, 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 there's two areas one is shade i know you can't see this but there's one's shaded green and one shaded red and it does seem to support what he's saying which is basically the best players win most of the time i guess number 2 it's important to note that these results this is why this is why i i started by the way with um the lemon drizzle cake because i thought that would that would just sort of uh, lighten the mood before we get into the heavy stuff anyway number 2 it's important to note that these results rely on both following assumptions a the probability that the best player wins a single frame does not depend on a, on the particular frame which implies eg that it is the same for the very first frame as a possible decider or as you pointed out in the christmas special that mid session intervals have no effect and b the outcome of a frame has no impact on the outcome of the subsequent frames. It's very likely that none of the assumptions actually hold in practice, and it would actually be nice to investigate, based on historical WST data, how incompatible these assumptions are with the real game. A similar exercise was performed in tennis, based on four years, 1992 to 1995, of point-by-point -point data at Wimbledon, a total of 90,000 points. See Classen and Magnus, 2001. So this was a study that they did, he said, in tennis, the same data was used to answer questions such as, is it an advantage to serve first in a set? And, and, would, and it would be interesting to use historical WST data to decide, e.g., whether or not there is a significant advantage or disadvantages to play first in case there's a respot. Would snooker authorities be ready to share the data? I'd be keen to study such questions or to invite students to investigate this in the framework of a master's thesis. Well, you can, uh, David, you can ask them by all means, but, um, uh, whether they'd be, they're a bit sort of particular about sharing data that obviously is, uh, is sort of paid for by the fact that they employ, I think Sport Radar, the company that, that do all that. But anyway, um, worth a try, I suppose. Uh, number three, in a recent episode of the podcast, the one that followed the Masters, I think, I very much like your discussion about which statistic is the most useful, relevant to consider in snooker. I can only agree that reliable statistics are those that are associated with frequent events. Basically, pot success is a reliable statistic since there are many pots in a match and since the challenging nature of pots will tend to average for both players in this big collection of pots. Whereas e.g. rest pot success, particularly in short matches, should be considered with care. While I realise that some may dislike statistics, my own take is that there's no reason to hire statistics. One can simply discard these if judged uninteresting. Hopefully one can discriminate between reliable and less reliable statistics. And one can be aware that in all cases, statistics tell a part of the story only. I can only understand... I can also understand that some spectators do find statistics distracting at times. In this respect, probably additional, deeper statistical information should better come between frames rather than during frames. With deeper statistical information, I think about e.g. graphs uh, that would show for each player uh, arrows one per shot linking the location of the cue ball to the location of the object ball. I think this would be the most instructive to appreciate, compare player abilities in terms of traditional play from a technical point of view this is perfectly possible at least when you, when you see what is shown nowadays during tennis matches apologies for the long read and once more thank you very much for the great podcast and your terrific work as a commentator in the game well thank you very much davy a lot to a lot to unpack there and uh, yeah i mean on the statistics side it is how you use them i think sort of just putting up pot success that is a general guide you know if someone's in the 90s they're probably been playing well if someone's down in the 60s, they're probably not playing well and they're probably losing. And that, that seems quite obvious. Some of the other stuff, I mean, safety success. I'm a bit dubious about that one because how how do you judge it to be successful? Okay, you play a safety, you get the cue ball on the bulk cushion. So you probably get, that's a success, right? But what happens if the, the other player gets down and knocks one in? It hasn't been successful in that case. They might knock in a great pot that, you, you know, that was probably almost impossible, but they've knocked it in. So it's not been successful in that case. Um, so anyway, but they, they, they should be used sparingly, I think. that It's just part of the furniture of matches and, um, you know, it, it just adds to the general sort of, uh, hope for the general enjoyment that people have of watching snooker. Uh, I think that's it then this week. Thank you for all the, uh, the comments. As I say, we won't be here next week. Um, but do set, keep sending your emails in because, um, they'll, they'll be ready for the for a fortnight's time. And as I say, we'll have a bumper edition. <laughs> we'll find out how bumper it actually is when we get to it um, but anyway uh, as I say the Welsh Open uh, stretches before us this week and uh, you know hopefully a good time will be had by all um, in terms of next season we're sort of waiting for details about how that's going to work obviously China is one of the issues there 
we know that you know with some of the dates for the home nations, the the, the triple crown events have got their dates uh, established because tickets are going on sale already. The European Masters and the German Masters we know are returning. The Championship League ranking event, most importantly in the summer, is returning. Get the lemon drizzle cake out uh, for the whole summer. Um, we had duck actually one day. We had duck this week. It was fantastic. You know, you don't normally get that at snooker tournaments. Um, very nice. Not for the duck, obviously, but that's, uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, the, the, hopefully there'll be obviously more tournaments uh, announced. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see. They normally sort of do it at the world championship in a, in a big sort of press conference, but it'd be interesting to see if they have managed to sort of rustle anything else up. Um, because I know a lot of people have been frustrated this season. Players in particular with the sort of reduced playing opportunities, even though there are still more than there used to be. Um, so anyway, that that will all uh, reveal itself in due course. Um, I've just been reading Cliff Thorburn's book, actually. Apropos nothing, uh, playing for keeps, uh, nineteen eighty-seven. Um, interesting book. I mean, the, the stuff about his early life in Canada very interesting. He came from, you know, quite an impoverished background. He had a, a certain um, so sort of psychological issue to deal with because he was he was told that his mother had passed away, and he, I think he was in his twenties when he found out she was still alive. So obviously that's quite something to sort of deal with. Um, it's clear that he was homesick um, when he moved to the UK, and he decided not to have a permanent home in in Britain. But then he had to set one up because he'd become more successful. He'd been apart from his wife. It was all you know. All that stuff is interesting. He doesn't pull any punches when it comes to discussing his fellow players. Um, it's pretty much what you'd expect. My favourite story in it is about Bill Wormanek. Uh, first, Bill Wormanek grew up in the wilds of Canada. First time he came to Britain, he was being driven in the north of England somewhere to go to an exhibition. And the road suddenly filled with sheep. And Bill asked the driver of the car for a gun. He wanted to shoot the sheep. He thought that's what you did, because that's what you do in the wild. Um, thankfully, the driver didn't have a gun. But anyway... Uh, if you can find a copy, it's, it's well worth reading. But that's it for this week. Um, uh, so we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, we're still proud members of the Sports Social Network. Do check out their other podcasts. And you can email me at, at uh, podcast at mail.com. We'll return in a fortnight. And uh, we hope uh, that uh, we will see two great events. I'm sure we will. The Welsh Open and the Players' Championship. Uh, so, uh, yes, I hope everyone enjoys it. But for now, as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.